You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Hello, this is Julie Kerr, producer of Inverse. I'm just jumping in quickly to let you know that this is part one of a very special two-part conversation between Dr. Willie James Jennings, along with Drew and Jared, recorded in community with friends from all over the world. So be sure to subscribe so you can hear part two, which will be released Monday, 7 December. We are really excited to introduce our guest for today, someone that Jared and I both deeply admire and have learned so much from, and that is Reverend Dr. Willie James Jennings. He's Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Africana Studies at Yale University Divinity School. Um, and his book, The Christian Imagination, uh, Theology and the Origins of Race has won just numerous uh, prestigious awards, uh, just groundbreaking. Um, and certainly many of us in our own community um, who are part of the Liberating Sunday School class in Australia are um, engaging and currently reading through the Acts commentary also written by Dr. Jennings. And so we're just so grateful to have you. Welcome to the Inverse Podcasts, Dr. Jennings. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Yeah. And um, just uh, one of our practices for Inverse is um, seems especially timely with you on the guest, which is to recognize the lands upon which we inhabit. And so I just want to honor and recognize I live on Susquehannock lands here in central Pennsylvania. Um, and so we're just really grateful to just be um, remembering uh, the peoples and the lands upon which we inhabit. Yeah. Dr. Jennings, um... Uh, I'm the son of an Irish migrant um, and uh, an Ashkenazi Jewish mother whose uh, family hid their identity in whiteness um, until um, uh, my mum's baptism and working out what that meant. Uh, but I find myself on uh, the Noongar lands, which you'll find on a map as Perth, Western Australia on most maps. But um, uh, seeking to go on this journey that uh, you have prophetically called us on, I might lift up... Um, the language that has been spoken on these lands by the people who have at least been here for 40,000, if not 50, 60,000, 70,000 years, oldest living uh, cultures in the world. So um, let me do that. Nangala Kadich, Nungamrot, Kayankarik, Nijabuja. I acknowledge the, the traditional custodians of this land and that this land was stolen and the work that we have to do to, uh, to follow Jesus in this place and deal with that legacy. Amen, amen, amen. I, I am on the land of the Agakwin speaking people, uh, the Quinnipiac people particularly, uh, nestled up against uh, Sleeping Giant Mountain here in what's also known as Hamden, Connecticut. And I certainly honor the Agakwin speaking peoples who have shepherded this land for thousands of years. And all the land, all the land is unseated. Mm. Dr. Jennings, um, just to get us started, um, can you uh, just uh, uh, read uh, selected passages that you've chosen to share with us um, today? Absolutely. The first comes from the book of Acts, chapter one, that, that odd moment in chapter one, <clears throat> after Jesus had risen and his disciples looked upon his face freshly, and uh, it pa passage picks up from there. And then We'll move on to chapter two, the first few chapters, first few verses of chapter two. So when they had come together, they asked him, 
Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 2 verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at the sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in their mother tongue. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own mother tongue and in our mother tongues, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. Rev Jennings, it, it feels appropriate before I ask my first question. Uh, would you open us in prayer, our time together? I'd love I'm that. I'm glad to. Hmm. Gracious God, we are always thankful to be in your presence, a presence that embraces us, a presence that haunts us, a presence that chases us, especially when we, in those moments, think we are alone. In this time, remind us that you are a teaching spirit, a guiding spirit, mm -hmm. one that will lead us into deeper joy, even as you lead us into greater work, so that this world might see through us the glory of God that you have poured out on this world. In the name of the one who rose from the dead, we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. Dr. Jennings, we'd, we'd love to hear your story uh, of how you first encountered the Bible. Yeah. So I was raised in a uh, Baptist church in the States here, where Grand Rapids, Michigan. And um, the, the uh, church I was raised in was a church filled with um, displaced folks from the South. All, everybody in my church was part of the Great Migration. Hmm. And so um, all these folk who were um, from the South migrated uh, to the North. And so I was in this church. And what I realized is that from the first moment I can remember, I was always inside gospel story. Hmm. Uh, I, I've, I've said it often, but it is certainly the case for me. Um, I was inside a story people. So my first encounter with the Bible was really um, being not only in this church, but being in my family and seeing how um, they didn't just, my, my folks didn't just read the Bible. Um, they lived the Bible. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so we were yeah. inside these stories all the time. So my mom, until I, I was a, I was a much older kid before I realized 
that um, Ruth and David and Jacob were not family. <laughs> when they talk about the Bible and the Bible stories, I thought, okay, that must be my cousin. Cause you know, we all have a lot of, I thought, okay, that must be my cousin too. And you know, old Paul, my dad, always said, oh, Paul. We, I said, okay, who, when did he, when did daddy know Paul? <laughs> so it was as though I was deeply inside all the stories because what they were doing in effect was to say, Willie, this, that this world is that, mm -hmm. <laughs> this is that. And so the world of the Bible was my world. I wasn't introduced first to text. Mm -hmm. I was introduced to a life, mm, yeah. a biblical life. And which meant for me that um, coming to know the, the text, that was, that was actually after I'd already known the stories. Yeah. Because the stories were sung, the stories were prayed, the stories were danced, the stories were um, woven into all the meals, all the meals. The stories were woven into every point of instruction, moral instruction. You did this wrong, you know. And so, the next thing I knew, I was, you know, people were talking to me about hell. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I don't want to go there. No. So, but that was long before I ever read any passage that talked about hell yeah. or heaven. And when family yeah. members die, you know, um, I, the first time I heard the story about the resurrection, it was hearing my mother and my father recite the words of Jesus to Martha and Mary wow. at the site of a funeral. Mm -hmm. And then later on, when I read it for the first time, oh, that's what, I, that's what I'm inside of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. So as you, I mean, as you reflect and think about the ways that you've heard these stories recited, lived, um, making, you know, just um, living within the story itself. I'm curious because our guests come from a whole range of different experiences. Like, how would you describe um, how you were encountering it? Like, uh, for some, it's liberating. For others, it's oppressive. Uh, how did you um, make sense of it at the time? And has that shifted over time um, as you think about your encountering of these stories? Well, it, it, it made sense because it was not, the, the Bible was never presented to me as axioms or principles yeah. or precepts or propositions. It was never presented to me first as that. It was presented to me as a living story. Yeah. The story that I'm in, the fabric of my life. And so the good and the bad of it, you know, um, David and Absalom, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, Balaam and his ass. <laughs> All of this was presented to me, was presented to me as the story I'm in. So it wasn't a question of, do you accept it or do you reject it? Right. No, this is your life. What, 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 what we're inside of is your life. Now, later on when it was presented, I mean, we started to have some preachers <laughs> who um, tried to present it as precept, as um, principle. And sometimes, and this, I think this is one of the geniuses of a, of a storied existence. When you live inside the story of scripture, then when someone tries to extract and, and, and turn it into a principle to, and then weaponize it against you, 
there's something about it that you already start to recoil from. So, oh, wait a minute. That's, that's, that's not how it's been working in my life. Yeah. And so um, what, what happened was that there was, a, there was a kind of basic pastoral, basic church, basic Christian kind of hermeneutic, a big, basic way of interpreting that I didn't realize I was inside of. And that is the, the preaching and the teaching of the Bible that clearly aligned with the life inside the story made sense. And we gladly accepted that. The preaching and the teaching and the presenting of precept that actually seemed to go against that life. We smiled, we smiled politely. And you know, and often at those, at those moments, the dear mothers in the church would just, you know, listen to a preacher and say, Lord, just help, help, help the preacher. Help him, Lord. Help him. <laughs> amen. Amen, preacher. Yes, yes, yes. But what they're saying is that, you know, what you're saying, you know, it, it may come from the Bible, but it's not the Bible. Mm -hmm. it, it, mm. is a way, it is a way of taking the Bible and weaponizing it yeah. for the purpose of control. Mm. And we were always attuned to that. Now, of course, we weren't always successful in uh, defeating that, but the reality is, is that there was a difference there. So I started to learn that. And as then as I went on to, to school, when I went on to school, I started to uh, learn in, in many ways what I was already inside of. You know, when I, was in, when I was in Calvin College and then Fuller Seminary and started learning about hermeneutics and interpretation and exegesis and eisegesis and, and all, you know, the various textures and fabrics of scripture. I mean, okay, then I was starting to understand what in fact I was inside of. But even there, I was often inside of people weaponizing the Bible mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For, for nefarious reasons. And very few people who um, understood what it meant to live inside the story. Yeah. The story is God claiming us, right? Mm. And that story, that story is so central to, to being able to touch scripture without <clears throat> without it um, being turned against you mm -hmm. made made a disease in your hand and mm -hmm. for some people the bible has been made um, toxic in their hands hmm. rev jennings our, our next question i feel like i'm cheating and asking because i, I feel um dr and i have spent so much time with your text that uh, uh we may know where you're going but we tend to ask about the gifts of one's own story and how it developed a, a hermeneutics to give others. Um, maybe I can name some of the gifts that um, your work and witness has, has given us. Um, uh, our Liberating Sunday School, which we run online, uh, many of our friends listening in uh, live now uh, are part of that. Uh, we weekly have um, Aboriginal elders and First Nation um, uh, leaders from around the world engage oh. with your texts as we open up the book of Acts together for over two hours every Sunday. And so your, your work, the, the way it's able to, um, uh, like I, I read you and I sometimes feel like Vine DeLorean Jr. is in the room or Reverend Barber is in the room. Um, it, it's sometimes it feels like we're at a moral Monday meeting and, and sometimes it, it feels like um, Bell Hooks is also here uh, bringing it a challenge. We would love to hear would you story for us um, that experience of uh, being in um, one of the 
belt buckles of America's Bible belt in terms of um, publishing of Christian material that you grew up in, uh, where everything is so Christian and yet white supremacy is in the air as much as hymns are. Um, how, how has your hermeneutic um, that has blessed us been arrived at in you? Would you take us on that journey of, of how you got to these things coming together for you? Yeah, I, I was um, I was raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, many of your listeners may never have been to Grand Rapids. It, it is, um, you know, as I'd say, one of the most theological cities in America. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, is, it is it is intensely intensely Christian. Uh, where I grew up, so so let me just give a little bit of the the, the, the um, elements that make it so intensely Christian. First, it is the home of a denomination. So the Christian Reformed Church. And, mm. and the Christian Reformed Church, when I was growing up, had at least 80 or 90 churches in the city proper, which means that where I lived, you could, you could throw a rock in any direction and you'd hit a church. <laughs> <laughs> and I lived 150 yards from the mother church, the founding uh, church of the denomination that, that was that and I played in the parking lot they had a they had a basketball court so I played in the parking lot of the mother church but the 80, 80 churches and then and then there was a they had a sister denomination the reformed church of America that was in the town over Holland Michigan which had a ton of churches and they had churches in Grand Rapids as well and then you also had all the other denominations Seventh-day Adventist Baptist Pentecostals of every stripe, you know, uh, Assemblies of God, in United Pentecostal Church, Koji, then you had, the, you had the Methodists, you had the Presbyterians, you had the Catholics, then you had, um, you had uh, synagogues, and then you had, you had mosques, I mean, so you had, you had everything, and so you, you had all that. Then Grand Rapids was also the home of four of um, the most important Christian publishers, Erdman's, Grand Rapids, right. um, founded founded by Dutch immigrants. Zondervan's was in Grand yep. Rapids. Yep. Um, Baker Bookhouse was in Grand Rapids, and a fourth one, which many of your listeners might know, it's um, Kriegel Books. Kriegel Books uh, was a publisher that would publish a lot of the old um, Reform Scholastic and uh, old texts. I mean, just you know. Some of those stand up and you know texts that if you you know those books can you know you, you put them in the corner and that they that they just sit there forever. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know all all of this all of this was in Grand Rapids and Grand Rapids was the home of a number of um, radio broadcasts that went across the planet, Christian radio broadcasts, um, and so it was in intensely Christian, literally, where I grew up, literally, you could, if I, if I got on my bike, and every, just about every block, there was going to be a church, either Reformed Church, Baptist Church, Presbyterian Church, so all this was going on, but what was also the case, my dear friends, what was also the case, it was one of the most racist towns you'd ever been in in your life, one of the most racist places to be, one of the most segregated places, where redlining, where controlling um, the movements of people of color where keeping people of color in particular areas, even to this day. When I was growing up, if you were black, when you came to Grand Rapids, you came to the west side of town. And then slowly 
the city officials and the city powers would allow black and a few Latinx folk, and I do mean a few, to move out of the West in very controlled areas, right? To this day, if you go back to Grand Rapids, uh, the black community primarily is still in the same place and the Latinx community is still in the same place, 35, 40 years later. It's incredibly, incredibly racist. And so I couldn't understand, my dear friends, I couldn't understand how can a place, and we're not, talk, we're not talking about naive Christian, we're talking about people who knew doctrine, Bible, you know, the, it, it, on, on, in the newspaper on Saturday nights, they would, you know, or, or Sundays, whatever, during the weekend, they would have the, the various heresy trials mm. happening <laughs> in the church where people were, were accused of preaching, preaching, um, you know, below doctrinal standards. So, it, it, <laughs> and, and churches wow. were judged, churches were judged by the quality of preaching, the mm. quality of worship. The, I, mean, so, I mean, so, you know, serious... Mm. But the question was, how can a place be so intensely Christian and so mm -hmm. intensely racist at the same time? I couldn't get my mind around it. I said, this, mm -hmm. and so this, this was the question that set my journey. Mm -hmm. And everywhere I turned, no one could give me an answer. Mm -hmm. I, I, I took it to church and my poor pastor, he, he, he just didn't know what to do with it. He just poor man. I, mean, I was one of those precocious kids that would ask questions constantly. <laughs> it got so bad when he got so bad, my dear pastor, growing up that he um, one day he told my mom, he said, uh, Sister Jens, I don't think your boy saved. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to tell you, but I don't think your boy saved. <laughs> Reverend, it's gonna be okay. He's gonna be all right. <laughs> I grew up in this, and so, so, and then when I went off to, to Calvin College, and then with the Fuller Seminary, and, and Duke University did my PhD, I carried this fundamental question, and um, in many contexts, I couldn't even put it on the table, because people, I knew I had professors who wouldn't even understand the question, yeah. let alone give me an answer. They wouldn't even understand what I was talking about. They would just, and I, I turned it out to a few professors who I thought might, and the and the vast majority, in fact, basically all of them, had that deer in the headlights look like, I don't know what, what you're talking about. They, they couldn't understand that I was, I was asking a question about the Christianity itself. Mm -hmm. That somehow, somehow it wasn't, it, it wasn't that there was this, this racial reality over here and the Christianity over there. Somehow these things were intricately tied together yep. and yep. nobody could see how, intricately they tie retiring. I said, no, there's yeah. something here. This lives because of this. Yeah. This grows out of this. Yeah. And, and these things are feeding off each other somewhere. And people are like, I don't, know, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so that that's that set me, that set me trying to figure this out. And and trying to understand what was what I later would call the diseased social imagination of the Christian, that there was mm. something placed in Christianity very early. I mean, it, it's, it's the, like the etymology of a disease, mm -hmm. that, that something got connected to something else, that then got connected to something else, that when it blossomed became this full-blown disease. Mm. And it's took me a while to say, okay, this is what 
this is why racism is so what it is. This is why whiteness is what it is. Mm-hmm. It it comes from this. Yeah. And and when I when I start to see that, I realize the inadequacy of so many of the responses. Yeah. Inadequacy to it because people couldn't connect the dots. Mm-hmm. The taking of indigenous land mm-hmm. is connected to immigrant transformation, is connected to the creation of blackness, is mm-hmm. connected to the creation of the built environment, is connected to theology, is connected mm-hmm. to the way the Christian life functions, is connected to derogatory visions that peoples have of themselves. All these things are connected. They, they're all tied together. Mm-hmm. And until you see how how they're connected you, you're only going to grab one little piece of it and you oh no wait a minute Th- this is tied to this and I, I have to grab both of these and then i have to grab both of these and i and i can't do it by myself i need a bunch of people we all have to grab these things and then start to pull at them so we can finally see what thwarts the christian what thwarts the christian's way of imagining and seeing the world it has yet to emerge yeah it's yet to emerge yeah. So you many know, people are deeply Christian, yeah. but they don't understand yet what that means about life together. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, I mean, I I resonate even as you're speaking now, which I mean, I know you work already, and yet it still resonates so deeply because of my own journey um, and the ways that I mean, for me it was coming onto a Christian campus, right? At Messiah as an undergrad that I was wrestling with these questions and had no one to answer, you know, and that drove me, that kind of set me on a new trajectory, um, wrestling and, um, and it wasn't until I came across your book and um, Carter's Race and Theological Account while I was a MDiv student and one of my professors kind of recommended me checking them out um, that I felt like someone that I first had some of my deeper questions being answered because before that, everything I had been given was either, um, and stuff that has been helpful in, in a whole variety of ways, but like my Christian college gave me racial reconciliation, right? That's the best that they could <laughs> offer, right? But it wasn't de- it wasn't getting to some of the deeper challenges that I think I knew intuitively, but didn't have a language for, didn't have a way of describing it. So um, your work has been powerful. I mean, I, I think when I first read The Christian Imagination, I didn't even, honestly, let's be honest. I was just like trying to glean as much as I could from it at that time and trying to make sense. This little, you know, little fragments, we'll use your word, right? Fragments Mm. that I'm grabbing um, in that sense um, and holding on. But even the language of disease, social imagination was just so powerful because it just just resonated so much with um, what I had seen, what I had experienced, what I had lived. Um, So I'm really grateful for um just the way that you have i think opened up a door for a lot of folks to begin to pull together all these pieces Mm. um it's really powerful and really important um so i would love in light of that for you to um walk us through uh, um you know these acts passages that what 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 just guide us through let's journey together through these these stories yeah so the the acts passages that i chose they're very important. Uh, and mm. I think, you know, as I was doing my commentary, I realized so many commentators just ran right by 
the dynamic right there at the very beginning. And I thought, wait a minute, you, this, is, this sets up the whole thing. We have to remember, so in Acts 1, in Acts 1, the impossible has happened. This, this leader that these disciples had followed had been killed by Roman power and by the clandestine plans of um, these Jewish leaders who wanted him dead. And so as would any, any group of followers, after you've lost your leader <clears throat> to the way leaders are lost through assassination, through uh, a kind of you know, CIA oper operation that mm -hmm. yielded what you wanted, showing the ultimate power to, to yet lie with the state, to yet lie with those who plan assassination, all of a sudden that's over because he's risen from the dead. And so the power over death is now a reality. And the power that would thwart any social movement, any revolution has now, <laughs> has now been challenged because he rose from the dead. And you know, we, we don't stop to think about the significance of that. The, the greatest power of the state, the greatest power of any, any organization that wishes to seize control is the threat of death. Mm -hmm. And when that threat is taken away because the one who you killed is back <laughs> with power, it's like, oh my God. And so the disciples, the disciples, looking at the resurrected Jesus, they ask the nationalist question, the crucial question. Now that you have risen with power and we are an oppressed people, you know we're an oppressed people. You know these Romans have had their boot on our neck. Now that you have risen with power, when will you restore Israel to power? When will we now take over? That's the question, right? Right there at the beginning of an oppressed people looking at their leader risen from the dead. All right, you got the power, let's take over. That's the question. And for so many peoples right now, the struggle right now across this planet is when can we turn this world right side up? If you have the power, we now see that you have the power, Jesus, turn this thing up right side up. And so Jesus' response is the response to that crucial question. You want power? I'm gonna give you power. But here already, this is what's so crucial for us. How do we think about the life of Jesus in relationship to the desire for power? Mm. And I'm not talking about power in the abstract. I'm talking mm -hmm. about power for people who have felt the boot of the state, the boot of whiteness, the boot of racism on their neck. And they want power over this crap. And so the question is, how do we relate the life of Jesus to the desire for power, for self-determination, for independence, for freedom? And so Jesus says to them, you will get power. I'm going to give you the power. Go and wait. It's about to come. And, and this is the first crucial reality. The disciples of Jesus wanted power over their enemies. They wanted power over people. They wanted power. They wanted self-determination, independence, freedom. That's what they wanted. And so here comes Acts 2. <laughs> and the power falls. 
but this is not what they wanted. This is they 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 want a power, but not like this. The spirit falls. The spirit comes, and the spirit rests on each of them. And here's the power of that. When you, when you read chapter two in relationship to chapter one, then you start to see the devastating new reality that we are inside of, right? So here in Acts two, the spirit comes upon them and the spirit compels them. Think about it as somebody putting their hands on your back and pushing you in a direction you don't wanna go. The spirit compels them to speak in the languages of other people. Now remember mm -hmm. this, is the answer to the request in chapter one, presses them to speak in the languages of other people. And others, other Jews from all over the world are there. And they hear them speaking in their mother tongues. And here I love the way my, my former colleague, the late great Dr. Lyman Sani often talked about this, that by saying mother tongues, you're not talking about the language of another kind of formally. You're talking about the language that's spoken in the intimate inner spaces of a people. Mm. The language that mamas speak to their babies mm -hmm. after growing up. And so that when you become an adult, when you're with your mother and she's addressing you and she knows you, it's that language that you're speaking. It's not, it's not, oh, yes, yes, this is my mother. No, it's mama. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the inner language. And so they hear these disciples who are not a part of their people speaking like they are down deep inside the belly of their people, speaking about the greatness of God from inside the belly of their people. And what's so powerful about this this is the power of God. Mm. This is the power of God. The power of God is not present in the desire to have power over people. The power of God is found in the desire for people. Mm. This is the overturning. This is the overturning that's there in Acts 1 and 2. Mm. To get that boot off my neck, requires that I enter fully into the way God wants to join us together. But what about the boot? What about the boot? Mm -hmm. Well, in Acts 2, we already see the way in which the boot will be taken off the neck by having too many necks for too few boots. Mm -hmm. By having too many who are joined together, too many who cut across lines, having a Cornelius and a Peter together, having those who wore the boots, now taking their boots off, joined with these others. This is the power of God, not the power over people, not an independence, not a sovereignty, not a separation, not a segregation that will yield power, but a joining, a gathering, a communion, that will issue in a new life. And there, the power of God will be found. Mm -hmm. This is what I love about this opening story of the book of Acts, because from the very beginning, we start to see not only what God is about, but what the presence of the Spirit means. Mm -hmm. The presence of the Spirit means that God 
is drawing you with cords of love that cannot be broken mm -hmm. or <laughs> people you would prefer not to be with. God mm -hmm. is drawing you to them. God is drawing them to you such that your life now will be implicated in their life. And the drawing is not just to stand and look at each other. The drawing is for you to enter deeply into the intimate spaces of life together where you learn to talk like they mama not in imitation, but in participation. You learn to be with them. And you enter, and, and as I, I said this in the commentary, here's the thing we have to remember. Um, some people have the ability to quickly learn language. Mm. And we all know that we stand in a long colonial history of people being forced to learn the languages of yes, the sir. Yeah. And we also know we stand in a long history of many people coming, merchants, missionaries, and soldiers coming to many places in the world, learning languages only for the purpose of conquest, no love. Mm -hmm. But we also know that there's a long history of people learning languages and realizing that at a point, if you are going to become fluent in a language where you can speak intimately with someone who you care about, that repetition has to give way to wanting. Mm. And that somewhere in you, there must emerge love. You have to come to love the language. And if that love is complete, you come to love the original signifiers of that language. You love the people, their stories, their, their, their joys, their sorrows, their jokes. All of that becomes a part of you because you have entered fully into the intimate space of that language. And here in the book of Acts in chapter two, that's exactly where the spirit is trying to get you, right? The spirit is trying to get you into that space and all that it requires, it requires the yielding of yourself into the logics of life in the land of another people. Because language is inextricably tied to land. Language is inextricably tied to land. Learn a language and people are going to point you to things. This is the word for forest. Mm -hmm. This is the word for stone. This is the word for sky. This is the word for the earth. This is the word we use for digging water. This is the word we use for drinking. Language ties you to land and land ties you to people woven inside of language. So here in Acts 1 and 2, we have the, a trajectory that is supposed to define the life of the Christian, yielding to this, <laughs> yielding to the spirit pushing. But dear friends, we also come up against the fundamental site, let's call it the fundamental site of sin mm. that is resisting the spirit. In the book mm. of Acts, as You've heard me say many times in the book of Acts, um, the sign of the spirit, the fundamental sign of the spirit is that people are being asked to do what they don't want to do. What they don't want to do. Mm. And primarily what they don't want to do is to go to the places and the people that the spirit is telling them to go. Mm. Right. 
go down here. I mean, you know, my as I like to say, my favorite story is is uh, Ananias, the one who uh, is sent to to Saul, then later become Paul. So, <laughs> when the angel comes and says, you know, God wants you to go to Saul, <laughs> Ananias said, um, I don't know if God knows this, but rumor has it. <laughs> This guy's a killer. <laughs> you might want to get this back to God before he sends me because you know, the rumor has it if I go to this guy, he's going to kill me. <laughs> I can imagine the angel going, Lord have mercy. <laughs> Dude, I was sent by God, man. Go, go on. <laughs> so, no, but, but rumor has it, he's a killer now. Does God know that? <laughs> but it's, it's, this, this is it, right? It is, it is the spirit pulling, drawing, pushing, mm. and our resistance, mm -hmm. our resistance. The church in the West is formed through the power of the spirit and shaped in the resistance to the spirit. Mm. Mm. We have to hold both those things together. Mm. If we are being formed by the spirit, but we are all, we are all stiff necked and stubborn, refusing to yield and allowing, allowing our shared life in the land to be configured. So, it, so to instill, to inscribe, to build resistance. It's hmm. good. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.